0: Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind.
1: And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. My co-host Ethan Elkind is off for the night, but you'll hear him later on in the show getting some unique local holiday shopping tips. Stay tuned for that. We'll also dig into the controversy surrounding the decision by San Francisco Election Commission to open up a competitive process for the position of director of elections. But first, a lot of things have put San Francisco in the national spotlight, and here's the latest. Last Tuesday, the Board of Supervisors voted to approve a policy allowing the San Francisco Police Department to use robots to kill people in limited emergency situations. Hmm. Here tonight to help us understand exactly what was approved and to unpack the risks and benefits to what are being called killer robots, I'm pleased to be joined by J.D. Morris. He's the city hall reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. He and a colleague recently co-authored an article about these killer robots. Welcome to State of the Bay, J.D. Um, we're also joined by Supervisor Dean Preston, who was one of the three supervisors who voted against the policy. Welcome, Supervisor Preston. Hi, thanks for having me on. Oh, great. Uh, really happy to have you. And finally, we have Peter Asaro. He's an associate professor at the New School in New York. He who researches the automation of police forces. Uh, thanks for staying up late with us, um, Peter.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. We're going to open up the phone lines early to hear from you all. What are your thoughts about weaponizing police robots to use lethal force? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. You can find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So, J.D., killer robots coming to San Francisco. I mean, it sounds both scary and like an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Um, J.D., can you tell us about these robots? What's the story?
3: Yeah. So it's important to note that, first of all, these robots are not exactly new. This is is equipment that um, the San Francisco Police Department has had going back to like 2010, I believe. And they had to bring this to the Board of Supervisors because of a state law that was passed that required them to get approval um, from the Board of Supervisors for how they use military grade equipment. And the police department says that they want the ability to be able to kill robot or be able to use robots to (laughs) kill people and potentially really extreme and dangerous situations like mass shooters, suicide bombers and things like that. So they have described it as sort of a last resort option in these really um, dangerous um, situations. But there's a lot of controversy about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that it was this state law that required them to get uh, permission from a governing body to use these. Is it are you saying that the police department already had its own policy to use lethal use robots and have them employ lethal force?
3: No, there there was no policy mm-hmm. um, about this before. Got in it. theory, I think you know, it had there been some sort of situation uh, where they would have wanted to do this. I think before the state law was passed, they in theory could have sent in um, a robot outfitted with an explosive, uh, like we saw in Dallas a couple of years ago when the police department there used a robot um, to kill someone that had uh, already shot and killed several police officers there. Um, but that, nothing like that had happened. And then this state law was passed that required police departments to get the explicit buy-in of mm. their local governing bodies for how they're allowed to use military-grade equipment, and that's why you saw this come forward. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, J.D., are there any limitations on use?
3: Yeah, so uh, the way the policy is written, it is something that uh, they can only use as sort of a, a last option if there's imminent loss of life that's likely to the public or police officers. And Before they can do it, they have to um, evaluate, they have to try other de-escalation tactics or have reached the conclusion that There's no way that they could subdue this threat with alternate means and only the chief of police or the assistant chief of operations or the deputy chief of special operations at the police department can authorize the use of robots as deadly force. So that's three people in the police department that have to sign. One of three people has to sign off on
1: that. Mm. And just to clarify, it's these robots aren't going to be armed with guns. They're being uh, loaded up with explosives in those situations. Is that right? Yeah,
3: that's that's the scenario that they've talked about, yes.
1: Well, Supervisor Preston, you were one of three supervisors who voted against this policy. What were your concerns?
4: Well, th- thanks again for having me on. I, I think um, my concerns and the concerns of so many people that I've heard from, from across San Francisco since this vote is the idea of having the police department use robots to kill people and whether that's by firing a firearm or by exploding an explosive um it's it is crossing into new terrain for the city to actually have a policy that authorizes police to use robots to kill and that's what's at issue here and you know it's it's uh, even more troubling when you look at the fact that no case has been made whatsoever for why the police department needs this uh, needs to be able to use robots to kill. Some of the examples that have been floated are uh, kind of shocking, actually, because the, they're proposing uh, using robots bearing bombs in a way that's uh, that would endanger the public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the more we learn, the more the concern grows. Uh, but there's a fundamental question here. We've never had a policy uh, that explicitly allows uh, the police department to use robots to kill, this would authorize that. And that's why you're seeing this kind of reaction from the public, from myself, from my colleagues, particularly President uh, Shimon Walton and uh, Supervisor Hillary Ronan. And we're hoping that some of our other colleagues will change their vote tomorrow.
1: Well, didn't Gordon Mars suggest that he was going to change his vote? He did
4: publicly stated today on social media that he regrets his vote and uh, will be voting against this tomorrow.
1: Well, there's a big rally today at City Hall. Were you there for that? And um, did did that rally represent sort of your points of view on this?
4: Yeah, I mean, we uh, have been working closely with advocates. You know, every civil rights group we've talked with uh, is a, is totally opposed to this policy, uh, and we worked with them to organize. Uh, this rally today on the steps of City Hall, which was organized with just a few days notice and had huge turnout both of media and of members of the public. I mean, I, I will say I've worked on a lot of issues in my three years in City Hall. I've rarely seen one where there's such um, agreement hmm. uh, that, that the city, and when I say the city, it's not just the board of supervisors vote last week. It is the, the mayor is the author of this legislation. The police department is asking for this authority, and eight supervisors last week uh, agreed to this. So this is uh, really shocking that we're at this place. Uh, with with this approved. And I don't think there's popular support in this city for this. And there's been a national and international reaction mm-hmm. to the idea of San Francisco, which so often leads on civil liberties mm-hmm. issues, uh, allowing police to have robots that kill.
1: Yeah. And, you know, J.D., you mentioned that it's um, it came up for a vote because of this um, piece of legislation. But why does the the police force believe that they need this kind of weapon in their arsenal?
3: I mean, one example that was brought up by the assistant chief um, at last week's meeting was the Las Vegas shooting that happened back in 2017, where you had a lone gunman, you know, high in a hotel tower um, shooting at a music festival down below, I think dozens of people were killed and hundreds were injured in that incident. And he brought up that really extreme hypothetical as a possible example, saying that if something like that were to happen here, this might be a tool that they would want to use in such a scenario. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of things that they were talking about.
1: Well, from what the reading that I've done about this suggests that the killer robots or whatever, I mean, I know that's a very media-friendly way to describe it, but that these robots actually... Um, end up being targeted by, you know, people who are being violent. And I mean, is it really effective if somebody just shoots the robot? I mean, how does it work in that scenario? JD, I don't
3: know exactly, but um, <laughs> a lot of people are asking the same questions. Right. Well, yeah, Peter. Oh, I, but, yeah. Please. Sorry, I just want to jump in on that one because you know we we were told
4: last week at the Board of Supervisors. Uh, that we should take some comfort in this kind of policy because, as J.D. noted, uh, you know, the chief or assistant chief has to sign off on the use of force. And then they come in, the assistant chief was there and citing examples. The two examples that were cited of when they would need a a bomb-bearing robot Mm -hmm. was, number one, the one J.D. just mentioned, which is the Las Vegas Mandalay Bay shooting. That that was, I mean, the idea of sending a robot with an explosive to deal with that situation. That was an occupied hotel, and mm-hmm. the, the assistant chief is actually suggesting we're going to blow up an occupied hotel, mm. but, right? Like that, that is a, a really reckless suggestion. And the second example was that that he mentioned was suicide was to subdue a suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. So we're actually going to take a person who is has explosives strapped to them. And the sfpd's justification for why we need a robot with a bomb
5: mm-hmm.
4: is to go subdue that like that doesn't even make sense <laughs> right so it's just I, I mean the back the bar here has got to be higher uh when we're talking about a, a new form of deadly force mm. in the police department and the 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 uh, examples they were giving for when they might deploy this are scarier than just the concept of killer robots
1: right and i mean you're One of your concerns, Supervisor Preston, is that it then becomes official city policy that this can be used. And, you know, if three or one of three people says it's okay, and you're concerned. Mm
4: -hmm. Yes. And and it goes beyond that. I mean, we know that deadly force is disproportionately used against black and brown communities. Right. Police departments use force against uh, against black residents of the city 12 times at 12 times the rate. than than they use force against uh, white people in our city. And this is not just San Francisco, right? I mean, we know that force is used disproportionately against black and brown people. Hmm. When you look at deadly force, the numbers are equally shocking. San Francisco has, you know, only about 5% of the city residents are African-American, yet 30% of the people who are killed by police are African-American, right? Hmm. So what do you think is gonna happen when we add in another tool of deadly force, here? Who is going to be the victim of that? Who is that going to be used against? And all the same problems we have right now. We have all these policies in place that deadly force is supposed to be a last resort, that they're supposed to engage in de-escalation, and yet Black and brown people still get killed by police, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we can have those same policies Mm -hmm. around robots, but we know who is going to get targeted. And that's part of why you see this big reaction from civil rights groups and particularly from community leaders uh, in the African-American
1: community. Well, I wanted to bring Peter Osara um, into the conversation. He's an associate professor at the New School of New York and researches the automa- automation of police forces. Peter, I mean, help us understand it in this in context. Are there other cities in the United States that have this policy and um, how has it worked for them?
2: As far as I know, there are no other cities that have a, a robot lethality policy. There's some policies around uh, warrants being required for drones that are used for surveillance or things like that. Um, And there's only been one real instance, uh, this Dallas uh, 2016 case where they used a bomb disposal robot to deliver a bomb to a suspect who was actually in an urban building. It was a community college building, and uh, this uh, individual had... Uh, suspected of targeting several police officers at a Black Lives Matter rally, but uh, was cornered. Uh, They actually were in phone negotiations for about eight hours, uh, and those negotiations sort of broke down or were not resolved. Uh, But it really raises these questions about imminence of danger. Yes, you have an armed suspect who's threatening to kill people, but they're cornered. They're not coming out. They're not moving. They're not actively you know, assaulting anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really a decision to just end the negotiations with lethality and not to see how it would play out, see if they would eventually surrender or give Mm -hmm. up or get tired or uh, any number of other possible outcomes or other options for de-escalation. and, and as it was said earlier, the idea of using explosives by police, I think, is just a generally bad idea. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good weapon unless they have, you know, structural engineering degrees and they really fully understand the implications of uh, how those explosives are going to, uh, you know, act in a certain mm. complex environment. mean um, we have cases like, you know, the, the MOVE bombing in uh, Philadelphia in the 1980s burned down an entire city block Mm -hmm. uh, and killed many innocent people. So you don't really want that uh, in general. And these machines aren't designed uh, for that kind of application. And the kinds of cases that legitimize this, of course, there are these extreme cases of snipers and killers and things like that. And that's actually the roots of the SWAT forces that we now uh, have all over the country came from the 1960s, the sniper in the University of Texas. And while there are cases where you do want these kinds of special uh, tactics teams to to handle certain situations, we've also seen the application to a whole lot of situations where they're not needed, they're not necessary. Serving warrants, particularly low-level drug warrants, um, Mm -hmm. even gambling warrants and things like that. And, of course, again, targeting communities of color, uh, poor communities, with these very aggressive militarized policing strategies and other forms of militarized policing have been used the same way. So we really want to try to avoid that. I
1: mean, and and you make that a good point, which is that the police forces in the United States are becoming more military like, you know, and less like civilian police forces when they have these types of weapons. Is it satisfying? Is it enough of a guardrail, Peter, to have a limit, to have um, permission for the use of this force be limited but to one of three people, does that make it safer in any way?
2: It certainly restricts the application, but I would think that, uh, you know, any situation that, you know, would rise to this level, you'd, you'd have those individuals involved mm-hmm. in the decision making mm-hmm. anyway. And, and the more common examples are, you know, hostage situations or uh, situations in which the suspect is barricaded in some way mm-hmm. and there there i think there is actually a valuable use of robots mm. uh, to establish communications uh to begin negotiations they're often used to deliver cell phones or pizzas or things like that to to de-escalate the situation but if the suspects know that they're potentially armed mm. then they're not going to allow them anywhere near them right yeah they're not going to let That's them in point. or debarricade so mm-hmm. it actually defeats one of the real useful use cases for these kinds of robots that would be unarmed.
1: Well, you know, the police, as J.D. said, made certain arguments in favor of it. But, you know, taking their side, it's becoming incredibly and increasingly more dangerous to be, be a police officer just because of the number of guns that are out there. Their argument is that this makes their job a little bit safer in the long run, Peter, does it make their job safer to have access to lethal um, weaponized robots?
2: I mean again, I would argue no that uh, you know what's gonna make them safer is getting fewer guns on the streets and making it more difficult for people to carry and conceal their weapons. Um, having robots carry guns around. I don't think it makes anybody any safer, really. And in this case, you have at least human control mm-hmm. over these weapons, so they are remote operated. There's a human making the decision, and maybe a high-level police official authorizing it.
6: Yeah. Uh,
2: but again, we're you know I work a lot in international arms control, and we're looking at the autonomous weapons question and trying to prohibit those uh, for military use internationally. And there you have the software and the computer inside the robot making decisions of lethal force. So once people and police departments start establishing policies around remote-operated lethal robots, then it's a very short step to automating that and just saying, "Well, it's more efficient if we just have these, you know, sentry robots being controlled by computers, mm-hmm. and we just eliminate the humans altogether."
1: Right. Um, well, Supervisor Preston, this isn't. This policy isn't final yet, and you're hoping to persuade some supervisors to change their votes. Do you think you'll have enough votes to um, change the policy?
4: I'll tell you that tomorrow afternoon. (laughs) I mean, so I never, I never predict votes. I will say this. Usually, you know, we have two readings on any ordinance through, that goes through the Board of Supervisors. Usually, the, fir- the votes on the first reading are the same as the votes on the second reading. Mm-hmm. Um, we already know because uh, Supervisor Marr uh, stated publicly today that he is changing his vote. We already know that tomorrow's vote will not be the same. As last week, um, and I think all my colleagues are hearing from the public in the same way uh, that I am, um, and, and, I, and I would also remind folks that that um, at the start of the hearing last week. Um, At least two of the other supervisors expressed some concerns they had and some interest in possibly sending this back to committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, you know, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, uh, but I certainly think uh, it seems like a majority of the board of supervisors is struggling with this and not too eager to move it forward. So my hope is that we're able to flip this vote and at minimum have it sent back to committee for public input and for uh, more of a discussion on this before anything
2: becomes final.
1: Well, I want to ask you, Supervisor Preston, you know, in terms of police policy, in September, the San Francisco supervisors voted seven to four to let police tempor- temporarily monitor live surveillance feeds in some cases. And there are a lot of people who objected to that because of privacy rights these issues come up to the board of supervisors because you're the governing body. Do you feel like that policy is headed in the right direction in terms of um, civil rights?
4: Well, no. I mean, I voted against the surveillance policy. I voted. I was the sole vote against our budget, uh, la, you know, earlier this year because it included a fifty million dollar increase for police. You know, I, I see eye to eye with a lot of my colleagues on the board of supervisors on a lot of issues. But I will say when it comes to um, policing right now um, and infringements on uh, civil liberties, that I'm concerned that some things uh, seem to be able to move through the board of supervisors and that there's increasingly a climate in which the uh, police in particular don't really have to justify uh, what they want through a real rational lens, and and I think we've come unfortunately uh, a great distance and and from where we were in 2020 when we were starting to look as a culture more closely at police practices and police use of force and discrimination and 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 uh, and misuse of force and and instead to a climate where. Um, where a lot of elected officials um just have a knee-jerk reaction to accept uh whatever is requested by police and and especially i mean you highlight surveillance but you know, i would highlight the budget too as well as this vote i mean you know a 50 million dollar increase uh, made no sense to me wasn't justified uh, and here we are now with something that seems so extreme I think most people would be like, "Are you kidding me?" Mm. You know, if someone proposed giving SFPD uh, the right to use robots to kill, mm-hmm. and instead we have a handful of, of my colleagues who basically claim that any questioning of police requests is "quote unquote" anti-police. You know, and yeah. and. It's, it's that's unfortunately some of the dialogue, but I'm hopeful that the majority of my colleagues uh, will will take a closer look at this tomorrow.
1: Well, if they don't, um, word on the street is Supervisor Preston that you'll bring the issue to voters.
4: Well, we'll see. I mean, I want to take it step by step. I, I you know, I think uh, my my hope is that we prevent this from becoming uh, from passing tomorrow. I think if it passes tomorrow, there are some very serious legal issues around Mm -hmm. whether the city has even complied with the notice requirements of AB 481. So uh, I would expect there'd be challenges probably from civil rights group groups to prevent this from going into effect, but I'm certainly open to if it clears those hurdles and it's actually going to become law in San Francisco, I'm certainly uh, open to talking with with uh, civil rights advocates about a possible ballot measure, because I don't I think that the voters of this city would absolutely reject this. This Mm -hmm. is the same city where just a few years ago, the voters rejected giving tasers. (laughs) Right, right. 62, 38 margin, not even close Mm -hmm. because of concerns about misuse of force and particularly against black and brown communities. And uh, I don't think it's even a question in my mind mm-hmm. that if you pose this to San Francisco voters on a ballot, they would absolutely reject giving San Francisco Police Department the ability to use uh, robots to inflict deadly force.
1: I think what San Francisco voters might approve of robots is to help them find their stolen bicycles, judging from what I see on next door. Uh, well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Supervisor Dean Preston, San Francisco City Hall reporter J.D. Morris, and New School Associate Professor Peter Asaro for Uh, illuminating us on this um, topic that has brought San Francisco back into the news. Thank you all for joining us.
4: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll dig into the controversy over the recent decision by the San Francisco Election Commission to open up a competitive process for the position of director. That's right after the break. Back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. In 2020, the San Francisco Elections Commission publicly praised its director of elections, John Arntz, for quote his incredible leadership. Arntz had run two elections that year, handled threats to election security, d- dealt with mandatory vote by mail operations to all registered voters, budget cuts, and the pandemic. So when the story broke in late November that the commission had voted to not renew Arntz's contract, people were surprised and some were outraged. The commission has hired a search firm and Arntz is free to apply for the job. A final decision will be made in April. This story became national news with Fox News for one, claiming that this was evidence that San Francisco is dysfunctional. But what was the logic behind the commission's decision? Here to help us answer that question, I'm so pleased to be uh, joined by Cynthia Dye. She's a member of the San Francisco Elections Commission. Welcome to the State of the Bay, Commissioner Dye.
7: Thanks so much for having me, Gloria. Uh,
1: It's grace, but I'm Sorry, I feel glo- I feel glorious today, too. So I All will right. take any name. Um, so, you know, f- to help our listeners understand and in case they don't know, tell us what the election-, election Commission is and who is on it.
7: Thanks so much for asking. The Elections Commission is the policymaking body that oversees the Department of Elections to ensure fair, free and functional elections in San Francisco. We are an independent citizens oversight body that the voters created in 2001 after years of elections mismanagement. Uh, Fun fact is that voters carefully designed the commission to prevent political interference or bias. Mm -hmm. Each of the seven commissioners is selected by a different elected official or agency. We are ordinary citizens, although many of us have served as poll inspectors or worked in elections before. And we volunteer our time.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's just get to the heart of the matter. What is the logic or the reasoning behind the decision to not renew Director John Arntz's contract?
7: So, um, so the media coverage has been unfortunate because we didn't actually make any decision at all about the director or his contract. Mm-hmm. Let me provide some context. Unlike... Many counties where the registrar of voters is elected every four years in San Francisco, the Elections Commission hires a civil service employee for a five year contract. According to civil service rules, an incumbent is not entitled to any special favoritism or preference. We can open a competitive search or at our sole discretion, we can forego this and reappoint 30 days before the end of the contract which isn't until May of 2023. So our decision wasn't about an individual, but a position. Mm -hmm. We made a time-sensitive decision to open a competitive search for the position of director of elections. Mm -hmm. I say time-sensitive because it takes time to run an equitable process that is fair to all candidates, including the incumbent. We deliberated many hours over three months, and after a presentation from the Department of Human Resources at our October meeting, we realized we needed to act. Unfortunately, our vote to start the search process has been mischaracterized as not renewing the director's contract. Rest assured that we will make an informed decision on renewal Mm -hmm. next year. To be crystal clear, we have not sacked the current director nor made a decision not to renew his contract. Mm -hmm. And your listeners can verify this themselves by going to our website and clicking on past meetings to watch the video recordings of our public discussions over the past three months.
1: Well, your colleague, Commissioner Jardinik, re- reportedly wrote an email to Director Arndt stating that whatever the decision that was made, it wasn't about performance, but that after 20 years in the commission, uh, the commission wanted to take action on the city's racial equity plan. Uh, is that correct?
7: Um, that that was correct. Uh, President Jardinik was asked by the commission to... Um, you know, speak with uh, the director after our closed session meeting uh, and, and make sure that he understood that it was not about performance. And you know, this, this, the search is, is, is not about an individual. The, the, since the Elections Commission first hired the director in May of 2003, it has not exercised its option to even take a look-see at the full pool of talent available to the city. That's 20 years. A lot changes in two decades. I mean, children have grown up up and gone to college. To fulfill our oversight responsibility to the people of San Francisco, we believe it's our duty to confirm that we have the best person running the department. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that by closing our eyes. Mm -hmm. But of course, the past performance will be considered for every candidate. The Mm -hmm. commission will review the current director's performance as part of the annual HR review process, likely in January, Um, one of the reasons we didn't feel comfortable making an early decision on contract renewal is that there has been quite a bit of turnover on the commission. Most of us were appointed, you know, just this year, some only in the past few meetings, and it wouldn't be fair to the current director to make a premature decision without benefit of at least one performance review all commissioners participated in. Mm -hmm. Well, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, as for the reference to the racial equity plan, our commission has discussed what we can do to advance the mayor's vision for racial equity over many months. Your listeners may not be aware that every department is required to develop a racial equity plan, which for the elections department includes the commission itself. Mm -hmm. And the commission has only two commissioners of color, not representative of the city's demographics, which is you know, majority minority like California overall. Um, but unfortunately, the commission has no control over its own membership. And while the department has made great strides to diversified staff, as you might expect, there's still a disparity between management roles and entry level or temporary poll worker roles.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: So we saw the search as an opportunity to give people a shot, you know, In Mm -hmm. the immortal words of Hamilton, (laughs) as uh, one of the few highly compensated senior leadership roles in the city, you know, because that's what equity is about, is equality of opportunity. Right. well,
1: let's talk a little bit about the um, the racial equity plan, though. Some have speculated that the reason the commission provided for the decision could actually make the city vulnerable to a lawsuit claiming that the decision was one made on, on the basis of race. I mean, just to be clear, uh, Director Arntz is not a person of color. Are you concerned about that?
7: No, for, for two simple reasons. Um, first, everyone who attends our meetings knows that at least one deputy city attorney also attends to give us legal advice and keep us out of trouble. Second, we were very clear in the motion to invite the current director to participate as a candidate and will not illegally discriminate against any candidate on the basis of race or gender.
1: Hmm. Well, there's
7: also been reports
1: that uh, be- beyond the racial equity plan, another issue that might have led to the opening up of the search is that it's been reported in recent Election Commission's meetings that there are some criticisms that the city has not made enough progress on open source voting. Tell us what what is open source voting? And was that a factor in the decision to open up a search?
7: Sure, Um Well, the short answer is no, but let me explain about open source voting. Um, You know, the city uses uh, a a voting system from a software vendor that, uh, you know, uh, sells the software to the city and uh, creates, um, you know, licensed proprietary software. Um, There's been a push and it's been the policy of the city to um, pursue uh, an open source system, which uh, many advocates believe would uh, say, not only save the city money, but also provide a great degree of uh, transparency and, you know, increased trust in our elections. Uh, we have had uh, you know, open source advocates uh, at almost every meeting, uh, all the ones I've attended, uh, and we know that they may be frustrated with the lack of progress on this very complex issue. Mm. But the Commission itself appreciates that the Department faces many implementation challenges And in any case, we would have not made a personnel decision on a single issue.
1: Right. Well, I know you need to um, leave shortly. But before you go, I want to ask, you know, Supervisor Aaron Peskin has reportedly put forth, has said that he may put forth a resolution stating that the Board of Supervisors won't sign off on the expense associated with a search. Um, It's estimated that it might cost as much as $50,000 to do a search for this director. If the city doesn't provide funding, what's going to happen?
7: Well, we're not paying for it. We already work for free, (laughs) but something that uh, we knew our commissioners have learned in this process is that despite being an independent commission, we do not have an independent budget, uh, which might be a flaw in the charter amendment. So we were hopeful that the mayor or the board of supervisors would provide funding uh, since no one else works for free, uh, especially executive search firms. We think it's a small investment over 20 years and a tiny fraction of the election department's 23 million dollar annual budget we will be discussing a response to supervisor peskin's resolution at our special meeting on the 12th and we encourage your listeners to tune into the live stream Mm -hmm. or join us at city hall Um, i drew the short straw to speak on behalf of the commission but my Fellow commissioners are all very thoughtful, and I invite you to hear their perspectives.
1: Well, we'll be sure to include a link to that um, commission meeting on our State of the Bay page at klw.org. But until then, I wanted to thank you, Cynthia Dye, for joining us tonight to explain the commission's thinking.
7: Thank you so much, Grace.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, joining us now to talk about a part of the story, I'm joined by D- Danny Sauter. He's a nonprofit director. He ran for District 3 supervisor in 2020 and also wrote an editorial about the commission's decision for The Chronicle. Welcome to the State of the Bay, Danny.
8: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
1: Right. And we're also joined by Joe Eskenazi. He's the managing editor and a columnist at Mission Local. Thanks so much for joining us again, Joe. I'm assuming Joe's on mute, um, and we'd like to invite you to join the, uh, part of to be part of the conversation. The decision by the elections commission has stirred up a lot of controversy, and we want you to weigh in. Are you supportive of the decision? Are you concerned by it? Give us a call eight six six seven nine eight. Talk, that's 866-798-8255, or email us at stateofthebay at org, or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Um, Danny, part of the outrage here stems from just how good Director Arntz appears to have been at the job. Can you talk about the state of the Department of Elections was in when he took over and what was accomplished?
8: Absolutely. Yeah, it was... Uh... You know, not too long ago that uh, we were in a very different place. Um, there were serious concerns about the integrity of past elections, particularly the 2000 election, uh, our city being referred to even as Little Florida, um, referencing the the Hanging Chad saga there. There was multiple ballot boxes that went missing and uh, ended up being found and fished out of the bay as far as Point Reyes. So, ah. you know. Things were in a really bad state at that point. And fast forward, you know, some 20 years now, um, this is an apartment that by and large, uh, city residents trust and, and have faith in and, and that's really important. And so, um, you know, that is why uh, this particular change has been so, so concerning
1: hmm. Well, Joe Eskenazi, I mean, you've been you've been doing a lot of reporting on this issue. What's the concern about why shouldn't the commission be able to open up its um, it, it has the right to under the charter? Why shouldn't it be able to open up a search for a director You know, after 20 years of having the same one? What's what's so wrong about that?
9: This is indeed an independent commission. And, you know, unlike many of the commissions that we can rail about and that, you know, uh, that Mr. Souter rightfully was annoyed with in his editorial, this is one commission that you really can't have anyone accountable for. You do need diffuse responsibility because this is the elections commission. You can't have the board control the elections commission or the mayor. You know, mm-hmm. it, the point is that it needs to have, you know, uh, everybody putting in something. The problem here is just that the decision is one that has has struck everyone as wrong Uh, You know, the the. The commission can do what it wants, but it has to take the uh, uh, the responsibility that if it riles up the director, the one that that we know has been running free and fair elections for 20 years, uh, that he may not want to participate in this if he feels slighted and that you run the risk of losing the talent.
5: Mm. And
9: this could happen in private industry as well, that, you know, that you have to weigh that. And, you know, while uh, I have great respect for Ms. Dye, and I hear nothing but good things about her from people around the city. I do think she's parsing it a bit by saying they didn't—they chose that—that that it's false that they didn't choose to renew his contract. The choice was: should we open it up to competition, or should we renew his contract right now and do away with that? So, in opening up to competition, de facto, you chose not to renew his contract. Mm. It doesn't mean you won't, but they didn't. Now, when the opportunity was there, so yes, they can do what they want, but these are the consequences.
1: Well, let's go to the phones. We have David from San Francisco on the line. David, welcome to State of the Bay.
6: Uh, hi there. Hi, I'm uh, the volunteer coordinator for San Francisco for the California Clean Money Campaign, and I want to thank you for doing this uh, show on this important issue and to thank the uh, elections commissioners for their work on this. I really strongly believe that the supervisors should let the commission do their job, give them the funding they need for the first competitive search for a director in 20 years, um, not just for the reasons that Commissioner Dye was raising, um, But also there are unanswered questions that have been raised by us and two other good government elections groups about the current director's transparency, truthfulness, and performance with regard to uh, not just open source voting, but a proposed um, voting system involving uh, internet voting, which uh, we thought was a really bad idea because it's not secure. And the director was questioned about this, and he was not truthful with the commission, um, and later, you know, emails showed that uh, he had not leveled with the commission on this. So um, before the uh, supervisors pass a resolution um, against the Elections Commission, you know, trying to stop them from doing a competitive search, um, we in the uh, California Clean Money Campaign and many others hope that they will at least have a hearing, a committee hearing, to discuss these other issues um, to uh, the Board of Supervisors. And, um, you know, let's let's let the uh, Elections Commission uh, do their job and let's hear about the uh, the issues um, that have been raised uh, by a letter that we sent to the Board of Supervisors last week. Okay, well,
1: thanks for sharing your perspective, David. We really appreciate it.
6: Um, Thank you, uh, Danny. You
1: know what the issues that David's raised that maybe. There are some concerns about performance. Is that something that you've heard um with regards to this job? Well,
8: no concerns related to performance. Now, you know what he mentioned related to open source voting uh is certainly something that has been raised as concerns by certain individuals, but you know as the commission said that was not considered in this decision. And so um, you know, that's that's not something that the the commission has put forth. And, um, you know, we ha- you know, if we take them at their word here, uh, it's not related to open source voting.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, Joe, you know, there's been some reporting, uh, according to the San Francisco Standard, that members of the Election Commission were frustrated about redistricting this spring. Could that have played a role in this? And what have you heard?
6: Well,
9: that's confusing because, again, to echo what Danny said, you know, uh, the stated reasons were that were what they were. The stated reasons were that it's been a long time and that they wanted to improve the diversity and equity and inclusion. So, you know, if they had reasons for doing what they did, they should have said what they were or just not said anything and not put the city in a legally tenuous position, which has happened. As far as redistricting, you know, that was you – know, I, I don't see how that has anything to do with the director. The director didn't name those commissioners who who then made a farce out of the redistricting process. That was the commission itself. And as Ms. Dye put it, these were also not the same people who are on the body now. So I, I don't think that has anything to do with it.
10: Mm-hmm. Well, let's go
1: back to the phones. Um, we have Brent from Half Moon Bay. Brent, welcome to State of the Bay. not there yet. Maybe we'll get him back. Um, I wanted to ask you, Danny, I mean, one thing that the commissioner mentioned is that the director of elections is appointed by or hired by the Elections Commission, which is different than in other um, constituencies where the registrar voter is elected to the job. Do you think the structure is correct? Or should that position be one that is voted on by the
9: people? To, to who well, I
8: think, oh. Go ahead,
9: Joe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was that to you, Danny? Either one. Uh, you go first, Danny. Sorry. Mm-hmm.
8: Well, I was going to say, I think that, uh, you know, it's it uh, is probably something that the average voter hasn't thought much about over the past 20 years. And, um, you know, the fact that uh, we're thinking about it now and the fact that this is, you know, there is some uncertainty around the election process. Um, I think it's a real negative for San Francisco and it's a real Negative for for everyday voters. Um, this is the last the last thing we want, which is, you know, it's it's rare in San Francisco for there to be trust in a department and a process, uh, and and we're toying with that right now, and I think we should be <laughs> extremely careful as we do that.
1: Right. Well, let's go back to the phones. I think we've got Brent from Half Moon Bay. Brent, welcome to State of the Bay. Well.
5: To do with performance
1: uh, you know Brent I don't think we heard the first part of your call so let's try that again
5: it made clear that this absolutely does have to do with performance there was an equity issue as well but it's been made quite clear by evidence that is supported by the public record that mr. Ernst has been less than forthright with the committee And with the commission, and we cannot live in fear that there's only one person that's able to do this job in San Francisco, as I think we're all going to find out. There will be many people that are quite smart on modern technology and are very forthright and will be honest with the commission that are willing to serve in that position. And for uh, this person to have that job for 20 years is unconscionable. So I I think that the um, guests, may uh, be okay when it doesn't come to elections, but since this is really the heart and soul of our democracy, we have to do the right thing here and go through the pain of opening the job up to other applicants. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, thanks for calling, Brent. Um, We also have an email from Jane. She writes, isn't it undemocratic to have commissions making decisions about running our city when the commissioners are not democratically elected? you know, who are these commissioners and what who are they answering to? Joe, you've covered City Hall for many years. What do you think about um, Jane's email?
9: I think that uh, I foresee lots of people uh, trying to, uh, you know, centralize mayoral control in the coming year because of boneheaded moves like this uh, by a unelected commission. Uh, if you believe in, in, in participatory democracy, I, I think that, you know, uh the commissions in themselves are not bad. Uh, the structure of many commissions leaves much to be desired. But again, whatever problems we have with commission, commissions writ large are separate and apart from this one. This is the one commission that needs to be diffused. This is the one commission where you can't really point your finger and say, this is on the mayor or this is on the board. You need to spread this out, as Ms. Dye aptly put it, because this is the Elections Commission and no one person can control the Elections Commission, because we've seen what happens in this city when one person does. And it was the, the chaotic situation that Danny alluded to 20 years ago. Mm. So these are separate issues, and it would be disingenuous to conflate it into one issue.
1: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Always nice to have you on, Joe Eskenazi, to bring some light to the situation. And Danny Sauter, nonprofit director and former supervisor candidate, thanks so much for joining us.
9: Thank, thank you to everybody. Thank you.
1: Thanks. And coming up after this break, we'll hear from Diane de Guzman. She's the deputy editor of Eater SF, and she's got some recommendations for delightful local holiday gifts. Stay with us.
0: Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. So the holiday season is here, and while Black Friday and Cyber Monday have already come and gone, it's still not too late to buy your gifts, and you can also do so while supporting local restaurants, small businesses, and artists. So tonight, Diane de Guzman, deputy editor of Eater SF, joins me to discuss really interesting local gifts that I think can apply to pretty much nearly everyone who might be on your holiday list. So Diane, welcome to State of the Bay. I'm so glad you're here and I definitely need some ideas. So I'm glad you can join us.
10: Oh, thanks for having me. I put this gift guide together with, you know, a lot of people of mine and obviously very soon focused. So I'm happy to help.
0: Yeah. Well, before we dig into that, I wanted to ask you about the guide because there's so many really amazing local businesses and artists in the Bay Area. So how does Eater SF choose? How do you curate this annual holiday gift guide?
10: There is no real science to it. Honestly, these are all products either we've used or makers that we follow on Instagram. Just all sorts of people that we've been keeping tabs on throughout the year. And so once we started putting gift guides together, we just reached out to people to try different products. And so this is the finalized list of the products that we just all loved.
0: That's great. Well, and of course, Eater SF, the the theme is going to be food. And uh, I definitely have people in my life who love to cook. And I generally try to steer clear of the kitchen gadgets that you can find online otherwise. So I'm I'm wondering what you could recommend from the gift guide for the home chef.
10: It's hard to choose. We all love all of these different products, like for instance, the spoons from Justura. I personally have one before we got the gift guide. Uh, Our editor, Lauren Saria, also has her own spare. And so we were just talking about these items and what we loved about them the spoon is really nice for making sauces and stirring things and also it's it has kind of a long handle that's perfect for reaching into deeper pots for instance it has a deeper well for lack of a better phrase for those liquids the spoon is an exact measurement of a tablespoon so if you're just making a sauce on the go and you want to add in like a tablespoon of soy sauce, tablespoon of oil, it's all ready to go. And it's very lightweight, easy to use. So it's like an all-purpose tool that we really like.
0: Great. And I also noticed you have some really great aprons that you feature from Alfred Ramos. Can you describe a bit about the aprons on, on your site that you feature?
10: So this apron from Staggerly Goods, we just noticed a lot of restaurants using them in San Francisco. And so we reached out to the maker What's really nice about it and shows the detail that they put into it is that as a crossback, leather crossback behind the chef's back so that it's a little bit more um not as wearing on the neck as some like traditional aprons are. And so I think it's just like those bits of attention to detail that really make it a good gift for someone who, you know, maybe is spending more than 30 minutes pick the chin and obviously want to protect their clothing as well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like these aprons have really become the sort of the go-to for San Francisco chefs. Let okay. me ask you about spices because I definitely mm-hmm. have folks, including myself, who are spice lovers. And you've got stuff on your list here from Fire Swamp Provisions. Can you talk about some of the different spices that you feature?
10: I too am very into spices. I, I'm actually a little bit of a salty, and so what originally, you know, kind of grabbed my attention about Fire Swamp Provisions was they had a really unique tomato leaf salt that I thought was very interesting. And so we we gathered a few of their products together. And what we settled on was this magic chili dust, which is so much fun to experiment with and use. And so, you know, I reached out to Alex Tishman, who's chef and who kind of runs this business out, out of his garage at Solar Public, he told me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked to him about uses for it. And I thought it was just so great to use it on pizza, soft-cooked eggs, avocado toast. It's just an all-around spice that I think is fun from a smaller maker that was worth highlighting.
0: Mm, That's great. Well, and Alex Tishman has a whole interesting backstory just on his own, a real COVID Mm -hmm. success story. Can you talk a little bit about Alex and, and how Fire Swamp Provisions came to be?
10: Of course. Alex, like a lot of chefs, had their jobs before the pandemic, but in the in the pandemic, he just transitioned into making his own food, and so he outfitted his garage to be able to start selling products like babkas at um, farmer's markets in Novato and just all sorts of breads, it, as well as those salts that I mentioned. He also does jams. It's just very lovely and seasonal.
0: Yeah, well, it's such a great example of how the pandemic throws people curveballs, but some people have really been able to re- redirect their energies and. And creativity in some really fascinating ways. Let me ask you about the drink side of the equation Uh, for those who enjoy a a nice alcoholic beverage. I saw that you feature some natural wines in particular. Can you describe a bit about natural wines? I feel like this is something they've been drinking over in Europe for a long time, but people in the Bay Area seem to be just discovering them.
10: Yeah. I mean, there's been this march towards really discovering kind of more of a a natural area of wine that maybe we're not as familiar with being so close to Napa. But the natural wine scene, what they do is really just not adding, you know, additives that are probably more prevalent in like a natural, which sounds there. I mean, other wines that are made locally, you know, sometimes there are sulfites and things like that. So, this is a very hands off way of wine making. Some people say like the ancient rich making wine. And so, to kind of bring you back to the gift guide, wild things wine is a, a local wine group that I kind of learned about organically. And Donna Rosser is just so easy to chat with. She kind of led me through pics that she had and she very nicely dropped it off on my doorstep. And it's just a nice, way of learning about natural wines with a little bit of a personal touch because she really tries to get the wines that she thinks people will enjoy.
0: Well, those are great recommendations and I, I think for people who enjoy wine, definitely it's worth trying natural wines if you haven't already because they are very different uh, yeah. and uh, and I think, you know, maybe have some additional health benefits without all those additives. So, all right, we've gone through food, we've gone through drinks. What about dessert? What what sweets really stood out to you this year?
10: Oh, uh, you know, We really love chocolate Bar. And so this spot just does such thoughtful, very wonderfully created little bonbons that we just enjoyed. It's one of those things where you don't realize it's vegan and not that being vegan is is, is (laughs) a terrible thing. But, you know, I remember back in like 2004, 2005 when the vegan scene wasn't what it is now. And you would say, oh, that is definitely vegan. You can't tell these chocolates are vegan. They taste wonderful. You don't feel like anything is missing from it, if that Mm -hmm. that makes sense.
0: Yeah, well, and your point is well taken. It's not that it's bad if it tastes vegan, but for those who Mm -hmm. maybe aren't so interested in vegan, it's nice if you have something that doesn't feel like it's changing the the taste at all. So I think we've covered food and drink, but you do have some non-food items on the gift-giving recommendations here, which is for art lovers. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about artist uh, Hannah Lehnhardt's work?
10: Oh, yeah, of course. During the pandemic, there's been kind of an outpouring of love for restaurants. And a lot of illustrators have moved into commemorating those places on Instagram. And Hannah's art is something that, you know, she just has these really beautiful colors that she brings into her artwork of restaurant storefronts. So, What's lovely about Hannah's work is that she dives back into places that have since have been closed for a while. Like for instance, I really love this print that she did of Video Cafe, which was a longtime San Francisco restaurant that closed years and years ago. Um, all the way to like today's restaurants where she's covering the love spots, like Good Luck Dim Sum and coffee shops, and just kind of celebrating the restaurant and bar and store histories of San Francisco. Well,
6: oh, that's
0: great. Well, it's all such good stuff. Really appreciate mm-hmm. you putting out the gift guide, especially for those of uh, our listeners like myself who maybe struggle a bit coming up with the with the good ideas for the right people. So I really appreciate yeah. that work. And also for joining us on State of the Bay, Diane de Guzman, Deputy Editor of Eater SF. Thanks so much, Diane. Really appreciate it.
10: Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate the time.
0: And happy holidays as well.
10: Happy holidays to you, too.
1: Well, that's State of the Bay this week, and you have your marching orders for holiday gifts. Um, We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit us on the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. Email us at any time at stateofthebay at KALW.org. And make sure to join us next week when we'll hear from renowned sleep scientist Dr. Eric Prather about how to unlock our best rest. That could be a big help as we enter the busy holiday season, so make sure to tune in. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney and Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. Good night, everybody, and thanks for listening.